We are going to be in Genesis today, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up. We'll start at Genesis chapter 8. If you don't have one, look underneath you and open up to around page 7 or something like that, and uh, that's where we'll be. If this is this your first time here, uh, while you're looking down there, grab one of these for us, and on the back side, just put the information you feel comfortable with giving us, write your name, your email, whatever. We'll, we want to get in contact with you and tell you as much as we can about the church um, whatever you feel comfortable with, just, just give it to us. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Genesis. We're picking up in the middle. Uh, I did part one last week. This is really part two of last week's sermon, so I'll, I'll review a little bit of last week, and then we'll, we'll get going. So let's pray first. Lord, thank you for this time that we have to come and um, study your word, and we pray that as we, we look at your word that we won't just be hearers or learners merely, but more than that, Lord, that we would also be doers. Um, that as we hear um, what it means to be <coughs> made new, made to be uh, a new creation in Christ, that it would change the way we, we think, change the way we work, change the way we um, interact with people, and that we would go from here as changed people, God, that sanctification would be something that we would want to pursue. And for those that don't know Jesus, God, I pray that you would you would regenerate them now, that you would save them through the service, that they would see and understand what Christ has done for them on the cross and they would become believers. Lord, we thank you for all your goodness towards us in Christ. I pray, God, that you would help me this morning speak the truth and that it would be um, in love and I confess my need for you to be able to even preach it all. Lord, I need you. Come now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be picking up in the middle of the flood story, uh, starting at chapter 8 verse 1. So if you weren't here last week, what I want to do is bring you up to speed a little bit, or even if you were here, just to kind of bring us all up uh, to remember a few things. Um, As we're going through chapter 8 and 9 today, looking at Noah, um, one thing becomes pretty evident is that Moses, the writer of Genesis, is over and over and over trying to help us see that Noah is just the next Adam, that There was a creation, and now this is a new creation, a brand new creation. And so uh, because of that last week, I reached back over into uh, 2 Corinthians, back I should say this way, reached over into 2 Corinthians last week to to use that as kind of our theme verse for as a new creation is being made and, and if you will, cleansed of all the sin that's present, as it says in Genesis 6-5, and salvation is being achieved by 8. It's the same thing for us, that we have been totally cleansed from our sin. We had a universal sin problem, therefore we have to have a universal Savior to save our entire body um, and cleanse us from all of our sin, and then from that, we are now saved. And so 2 Corinthians 5-17 was kind of our theme verse, if you will, and and helps us understand um, the points that we'll be making. 2 Corinthians 5-17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. So this idea of being a new creation is that that former life outside of Christ is no longer descriptive of who you are now. Just like the flood came and cleansed all those that were sinned and made, the, made new and the people that came out were considered saved, it's the same with us, that we are now new creation, cleansed, all of our sin wiped away, and now we are also made new. And so as we're looking at that, there was a few things that we wanted to see. Now last week we started at 6-9, and went through 724. So what we saw in, in those particular verses, we saw God saying that the earth was sinful, telling Noah he wanted him to build an ark. And as Noah built that ark, probably over the span of about 100 years or so, um, God made a covenant with him. Noah was obedient, right away obedient. Yes, Lord, and, and he did what he said. And then we see the animals going, getting put on there. God shuts them into the ark. And as they're shut into the ark, it says, that as it's in in chapter 7, Noah was in the ark for about 150 days, and we, we touched into chapter 8, 1, and we're going to let that be our first verse today. And it's, but God remembered Noah. God remembered his covenant. He's faithful always. When he makes a covenant with someone, it's a definite promise, and he keeps it. And so we saw in 8, 1, but God remembered Noah. So some of the things that we saw last week are, um, as they're describing Noah as righteous and blameless and walking with God. That's the same words as it used for uh, Enoch, walk with God. And then right underneath that, it says that the earth was corrupt and violent. 
it has a contrast between the two. And so as we see that contrast and we realize that the earth is being described as sinful, one of the things that's true of us, this is last week's review, is that new beginnings or new creations necessitate um, acknowledging need. We need to realize that we're in need, we're sinners as well, and we need to be cleansed. And whenever we realize that we're sinners and we confess, then we can become a new creation. As we kept moving, we saw that God was in the details, describing explicitly what he wanted this ark to look like, and therefore Noah had to follow up with those details. He had to do those things. He had to rearrange his priorities. He was no longer allowed to keep doing what he was doing. Instead, for the next hundred years, he had to focus in on this task that God had given him, specifically making the ark. And so we saw also that the next thing is that being a new creation, when it's based on the gospel, like the covenant that was made with Noah, that we were sinners and yet God makes a covenant with us and saves us, that it does require detailed work in our life. There are some things that have to change. There are priorities that have to be rearranged. And these things are all our joy. This is worship. This is not required for salvation. It's not salvific, but it instead is acts of worship, acts of evidence and obedience um, of, as it says, Noah obeyed all that he did. Noah obeyed all that he did. Um, that's, that's what's required of us is obedience. And so as we kept moving, we saw that um, Noah was a chosen channel for salvation. That was the third thing. Because of Noah's righteousness, because of him being blameless and walking with God, those that were with him, his family, got to be um, uh, partakers of the salvation being on the ark as all were perishing underneath the floodwaters. Noah was used as a channel for salvation for those around us. And we say, well, that's only seven people. There's a lot of people that died. Well, we granted... But what if we took up that same challenge and said, in our lifetime, we want to proclaim the gospel to at least seven people? What if we said that that's a standard for us? By the, by the time from you know, cradle to grave, I want to see seven people come to know Christ through God using me as a channel of salvation, no pun intended on the channel. Uh, and the last thing, uh, the fourth thing that we saw was uh, being, as, as creation was cleansed and all those who were, who were in the flood died and those that came out were saved and the creation was made new as well. Same thing with us. We're cleansed from all of our sin and we're made new. So the fourth thing we saw is that being a new creation means being washed and cleansed and made new from all corruption. As the earth was made new from corruption, that's descriptive of us. And this is excellent news. I mean, this is outstanding news for sinners, which is all of us. We are completely washed and cleansed like the, like the earth was in that particular day. And as I was going through, I and over and over tried to make a case, um, not just textually, because I think that's exactly the point that Moses is wanting us to think. Uh, without question, as Moses is writing, he's warning us, without question, to think this was a flood that was universal. It happened all, it says, all over the earth, all flesh, all over the earth, all flesh. Um, but more importantly is the theological issue. The reason why I think it's more important that we understand that is because there was a universal sin problem and the, the earth had to be universally cleansed. Therefore, we have also a total depravity and it's, it's all, we're completely corrupt from, and so whenever we're cleansed, we don't just need partial cleansing. Instead, we need all cleansing. So it's not just a textual biblical issue, I think. It's also a theological thing that's going on. The reason why Moses is making painstaking efforts to make us think as he writes that this flood covered the whole earth, and that's what God says, that it covered the whole earth. The, the whole rainbow, uh, the whole covenant later doesn't even make sense to me if he says, I promise I will never flood the whole earth, but yet we still have isolated floods. If this was just an isolated flood, then what's the point of making a, a covenant of that I won't flood the whole earth? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that we can say, but the whole point, I think, the better is theological, which is we had a universal sin problem that ha- needed to be universally cleansed. Same thing with us. We're totally... Co- corrupt. We're completely depraved, and therefore we need to be totally cleansed, made as a new creation. Now, as we're going in, we're going to see um, in 8.1 four different things today uh, that I want you to see. Uh, I'm going to take these in large chunks. I actually preached a short sermon first service. Uh, That's never the case for y'all, I know, but um, you will get out of here before the World Cup starts at three or four, so um, I'm just kidding. But we're starting with 8.1, and as we're starting with 8.1, the point that we're, the reason why we're starting with 8.1 is because, but God remembered Noah. As we saw, God is a covenant-keeping God. God's past redemptive works um, prefigure his redemptive work in present and the future. God here is keeping covenant. He is redeeming them. And based on that, we can, we can know that he's going to be a redeeming God with us and his present and the future. As he demonstrates his redemptive work here, we know that it's going to be demonstrating uh, the same thing for us in our own lives. Now, as I said, 
Um, the writer is trying to over and over help you see the parallels between Adam and Noah. And I, I'm going to point them out, but I, don't know, I know I don't have to because you're such amazing readers, you're going to see them naturally. But just for, you know, just in case, we'll, we'll point them out anyway. Here we go. But God remembered Noah and the beasts of the field and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Here's one. Um, and God made a wind, that's ruah, that's wind or spirit. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. This sounds very much like Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit's hovering over the waters before the days of creation. There's chaos in all the earth. And the, here comes the Spirit bringing order to the chaos in a watery chaos. Here it is again, where the ruah, the wind is coming. And now there's chaos everywhere, water's everywhere. And he's blowing and there's bringing order now again to the water watery chaos. And God made a wind or a spirit wind, ruah, blow over the earth and the waters began to subside. The foundations of the deep and the windows and the heavens were closed. They were opened, as it says, in 7.11. Now they're being closed here in 8.2. And the rains from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded and the earth continued. Um, At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Now, as we're going through this, the writers want you to see, it's going to take a long time. Like, in the end, Noah's going to end up being on this ark for an entire year, for an entire year. So after 150 days, at tw- verse 24, we see the 128th, the waters abated. The seventh month, 17th day, the ark came in the mounts of Ararat. That's, um, you have Iraq. Northern of Iraq is Turkey. So in east, 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 east Turkey, kind of Russia, Turkey, and Iran, Iraq, right in there. That's where Ararat is. And this is where the boat finally settled somewhere in there. People are still looking for the ark. Yeah. They're probably not going to find it, but that's where it is. Um, and the waters continue to abate. Maybe they'll find it. That would be awesome if they did. And the waters continue to abate until the 10th month. And the 10th month on the first day, the mountaintops were seen, finally. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that it may be sent forth. He sent forth a raven. He's going to send forth two, two birds here. The raven first. The raven is a stronger bird than the dove. The raven can, can fly for long periods of time, can remain in flight for a very long time. He sends it out. Um, to go to and fro to see if the, the earth dries up. Then he sends forth a dove to see if the water is decided. The dove found no place to set her foot. She returns to the ark. They still face over the whole earth. I still think that's universal. Uh, then he, so he put his hand and took him over. Uh, and then 10, he waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove of the ark. And finally, the, of, the dove brings black, as it says, in the end of, or in the middle of 11, uh, a freshly plucked olive leaf. That means that there is some kinds of trees and plants growing again. So finally there's this order bringing, being brought from the chaos. But still he doesn't leave. Um, you'll see here in just a second. Uh, Noah knew the waters subsided from the earth. He waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. She didn't return. So here it is. Now this 8.13 sounds a lot like 7.11. And 7.11, the 600 month of Noah's life, blah, blah, blah. It's really detailed in, his, in how old he was. Here the 601st year of the first month. Of the, so we... we He's getting so detailed to help us see that Noah was there for a long time, probably almost uh, a full year or so. Um, Noah removed the covering of the ark in the second month. And finally, just as God told him in 7-1, go into the ark. And in 7-16, God shut the ark. Now in 8-15, God finally says, now you can come out of the ark. It's always uh, the entering, the entering, the closing, and the coming out is by God saying and doing it. And here it says in 8.15, God said to Noah, go out of the ark. You and your wives and sons bring everything with you. Bring all the animals. Don't forget them. Noah went out and his sons and, the, uh, and his wives. Every beast, every creeping bird, everything that was on the earth, they all came out. The principle that we're seeing here is this. Um, took a long time for all of this watery chaos to abate and subside. Um, the principle that's being demonstrated is this. Destruction came quickly. People died right away in this flood. However, the restoration and the renewal took some time. And I think that we've experienced that in our life. Maybe in a relationship, like you've, you've said something, you've done something, boom. This immediate, like it happened so fast and all of a sudden destruction came. Our own sinfulness, because we're born in the line of Adam, that destruction is who we are right away. And as we come to know Christ, I'm speaking of sanctification, not justification. We're declared to be righteous right away. But we've noticed as we've gone through this process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, this restoration and renewal, it takes a while. It just takes a while. We, we struggle with things over and over. We, we hate that it's still in our life. The first thing I want you to see is this. Being a new creation means we realize that our destruction that says can, that's just a typo, it should say came, came quickly 
or even a, a, a relationship that you had with somebody could have ended quickly or something you said, did, whatever. Those things tend to happen fast. And our sanctification, restoration, renewal, those things are progressive. So as this progress, this length of time of sanctification takes place, just realize that God is patient with you. Don't beat yourself up. Certainly, strive. Certainly. Colossians 3, 5, put to death. You know, 8, 8, Romans eight thirteen put to death the things that are in you. However, realize that the Lord is far more patient with you than maybe you are, which is good news. And that restoration and renewal, unlike our destruction, which is quick, is, is, is a process. It takes a long time. That's the first thing I want you to get, is that our sanctification and, re- and renewal takes a while. Now, um, as I'm walking, if it's just me, as I'm walking off this ark, having been cooped up there with the same seven people, presumably it's a large ark, so maybe you could go to some corner and, and, and finally get away from everybody. Maybe it's a great you know, uh, place to play tag, I don't know, and hide in the seat. But as I'm getting off, I'm really wanting some alone time. You know? I, it's time for me to get out of here. I need to go to Chick-fil-A, get a cell phone, build a house. Like, there's a lot of things I want to do, and, I, and it's presumably not with you seven. Like, I want to I get out of here um, and, and get away and do stuff. If you're type A, you're walking off the ark, you're like, I got my to-do list. I've had this thing halfway through this deal, and I'm ready to start setting up shop and getting going. I got a house. I got a plan. I want to do those things. But what's, what's Noah's first impulse? Is it get to, list, get to going on my list? Is it, what is it? I want you to notice the very first thing Noah does as he walks off is not says, okay, God, I obeyed you. I need my me time. I've done what you've said. I've got some things I want to do. Time for me to build a house, etc." Notice the very first thing in 820. As Noah steps off, Noah's want, Moses is wanting us to think that this is his immediate action, his first impulse. I, I love this. Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of the clean animals um, and some from every clean bird and offered them as burnt offerings to the Lord. So Noah's first impulse of being saved, of God doing amazing work and bringing um, some kind of work in his life. Presumably you've had amazing works of God in your life. This one's pretty huge. His first impulse is worship. The first thing he does is worship. Not me time, not get my list done, not God, you'll get my later time another time whenever I got my free time and I've, I've done all the things I want. And it says when that happened, the Lord smelled this as a pleasing aroma. Obviously, God doesn't have a nose. This is anthropomorphic language. It says God using language that man can understand um, that, that describes God, though it's not necessarily descriptive exactly of God. It's anthropomorphic. Uh, the Lord smelled this and it was pleasing in his heart. He doesn't have a nose. He doesn't have a heart. Um, God has a heart figuratively, not literally. So anyway, um, I will never curse the ground again because of man. The intentions of his heart are evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So we see that Noah's first impulse as he walks off this ark is not to say, okay, God, I did a year's worth of obedience. Now it's time for me. Instead, it's I'm going to worship for your, for your hand being in this. You've done an amazing work. Therefore, God, you deserve this. So I think that what we can see is as Noah, as, as, I'm sorry, as Noah, I'm going to keep doing messing that up, but just bear with me and act like I said it right. So as Noah walks off this, he continues in this line of Seth from 426 where it was said that they were calling upon the name of the Lord, meaning that they were worshiping God. He also, as he walks off, his first impulse as he walks off is to say, God, you deserve all the glory for this. Um, I'm going to respond. I'm going to choose to respond right now with worship. There's a lot of things I could do right now for me, but no way. This is all for you here. Is that your impulse as you walk through life when God does amazing things? Is that your first impulse? When God's hand moves and does some kind of amazing work, you have a new job, you have a family, you have a child, you have a car, you have, like he blesses you with something. Is it like, yes, use it? Or is it like, stop and say, God, you came through. And God remembered Noah, and Noah then, as he walks off, remembers God. He says, I, I've got things to do, of course, but instead, I'm going to stop, and my first impulse is to give you the glory, God, for what you've done. As we look at 9, 1 through 9, 7, um, I want to show you at least three different ways here that Noah continues in this worship of God. So we're still under point two. So if you want to, you can make, these won't be on the screen, 2.1, 2.2, 2.3. But I think these are things that he worships God with and therefore they're direct um, things that we can worship God with, direct applications for us. You'll see in 9.1 and 9.7, 
um, continuing in the same language as Adam. Remember in uh, Genesis 1, 28, I think it's 28, God says to, to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, hey, Adam, Eve, it's just you two. I want a lot more. So start having kids and a lot of them. Um, the same language is going to be given to, to Noah in 9.1 and 9.7. Again, there's multiple, multiple parallels of which I'm going to show you in here in just a second. Multiple parallels. And here's one where it says, And God blessed Noah and his son, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Look at 9.7. And, and to you, be fruitful and multiply and team on the earth. And team on the earth and multiply in it. So um, let me just go ahead right now and show you the multiple similarities between Moses, I'm sorry, between Adam and Noah that Moses is writing. They're both considered the fathers of humanity. Certainly God, uh, Adam is our father of humanity, but as everybody was washed away, Noah is too. It all goes back to Noah and it all goes back to, to Adam. Both entered into a new world that was brought out of watery chaos. Both are image bearers of God. Both walked with God. It says it, that Noah walked with God and we actually know that Adam walked with God, as it says in Genesis 3. Um, both ruled over animals in some kind of way. Obviously, Adam named them, but Moses ruled over them into the ark and brought them in there. Both are told to be fruitful and multiply in 9197. Both work the ground. Uh, Moses, I'm sorry, Noah will do that soon. Both end up becoming workers of the ground. And as they work the ground, both sin against God in these gardens. Um, both have, because of their sin, uh, it results in shameful nakedness. We're going to get to that in a second with Noah. It's a very odd story. Uh, both had their nakedness covered. Uh, Adam's was covered by God. Noah's is covered by his sons. Both were in covenant with God. We heard about this Noahic covenant. In Hosea 6, it says Adam was in covenant with God. Both had recorded in the Bible three sons, one of which brought grievous sin into the family. So it's just repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly trying to help us see that this is a new creation out of the old creation, just like we're new creations. So here, 9.1, a first impulse worshiper is going to worship God with the way that they procreate and are blessed with children. They're going to do it in, in the act of marriage. And as the Lord brings children, they're not going to say, oh, children are such hassles. They drag me down for the things I want to do. That's, that's selfish. Instead, as we receive children, we realize that these are blessings from the Lord. Thank you for blessing me. And Lord, as you choose to bless me with whatever number it is, I want to raise these children in the admonition of you to know you and send them back out as yours at age 18. I guess that's more like 28 these days, but send them back out as yours these, Lord, uh, these years day, th this Lord as yours. So our first impulse worshipers are realizing that children are blessings and we want to, as it says, be fruitful and multiply in the context of marriage as the Lord allows. We want to have hearts that love children. Hearts that love children. That's one way we can worship. The next one we can see is right after that. That's, that's 9.1 and 9.7. Um, 9.2 through uh, 9.4, God's going to talk to us about food. Um, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon the, every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. What does all that mean? It means this. Every moving thing uh, that lives shall be food for you. In other words, you can eat meat and it's no big deal for God. Like, as a matter of fact, he's kind of pushing you in, in that direction. Go eat a cheeseburger. Like, go enjoy some steak. Go eat bacon. Enjoy that bacon. It's so good. Like, God wants you to. We have a little, uh, in, a, in the hunt club, we have this kind of thing, especially at the very end of the season. If it's brown, it's down. Like, if we see it and it's brown, it's the end of the season, we're, we're taking it out. That's the idea here. If it's got, like, if it's meat, take it down, kill it, eat it. It's yours. It's, you can have it. Also, in, in balance, just to be fair for you uh, that like veggies, eat your broccoli. It says it right here at the end. Uh, and as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. I, I like more 3A than 3B. I'm more of a meat guy than a veggie guy. We're supposed to eat both. Um, but the whole point is, uh, oh, let's also see four. This is important, I think. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Um, animals that are alive tend to not like to be eaten while they're alive. Um, they probably will kick you. I think this is a good verse to say you shouldn't eat sushi, but that's just me. Um, but my whole point is this, because it's just nasty. But my point is this. Um, if we're putting it in the broader context of worshiping, it means this. God has given us food. Therefore, as first impulse worshipers, we're to worship God in the way that we eat. We're to worship God in the way that we eat. Being thankful. The Lord's given us meat. The Lord's given us plants. The Lord's given us broccoli. 
being thankful as we eat our PBJ and drink orange juice or we're eating spaghetti or whatever you eat, realize that this is a gift from God. Thank you, God, for this food. Uh, Though I made it uh, and prepared it, you made it, made it. And so I thank you for it. We also were worshipers by not eating too much, by eating healthy, and all these kinds of respects. But but certainly the bigger picture is we're supposed to worship God with the way that we eat. and be thankful for the things that he gives to us. We have to have food to survive, to have sustenance, and so we should be thankful for it. If you're continuing on, this last little verses five and six, these particular verses are usually used by um, people that want to make a case for capital punishment, Uh, but the main idea, I think, through five and six is telling us, as fellow men, how to interact and lovingly interact with with other people. It says in five, um, I should say, yeah, five. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every... So he's, he's even, I think, I think the point of this is he's pointing back to Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. And he's saying, remember when the brother killed the brother? I'm making a law now so that we understand man's important. Man's important. It's not just like they're, they're not just like animals. You have this hierarchy now of plants and animals and man. And it's going to say man is made in the image of God. Therefore, these things are important, but man is most important. And therefore, the way that man interacts with man, they're never supposed to kill them. They're never, ever supposed to. If that happens, there's a reckoning coming. Look what it says. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Here it is. For whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. Why? Because for, that's making an argument, God made man in his image. We're different than everybody. We're different than, I should say, the animals or plants. They're important. There's no question about it. We're more important. They don't have souls. They're not at church this Sunday morning. They're running around the woods. They don't have clothes on. They're, they're different than us. They're different. If you put clothes on your animals, it's just kind of weird. Um, but um, they're not made, like dogs aren't made to wear sweaters. They have fur, Right? But anyway, the whole point is this, that we are to be first impulse worshipers with the way that we obey the law that God's given us and the way that we interact and deal with fellow men. Love them, care for them, be kind to them, don't sin against them. There's a reckoning coming for people that do that. So as worshipers, we're supposed to care for them. And as I said, people use these verses for the death penalty. I'm not making any arguments for or against the death penalty. It seems to be a broken system right now um, in America. Anyway, Back to 9.8. Uh, so in this, we're going to see a little bit different. This is the, the very familiar story about the rainbow. Here it is. This is the rainbow covenant that God makes with Noah uh, in this particular verse. It says, <clears throat> Then God said to Noah to his sons uh, with him, Behold, I establish my covenant. You're going to see over and over the, the language of covenant with you and your offspring and with the living creatures that is with the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth that's with you. As many as you came out of the ark, is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that I will never again uh, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall be, there be a flood to destroy the earth. Um, then God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, literally like, you know, like a bow, like you shoot here. Gradanus, as he's talking, by the way, don't miss this never again, this emphasis in 11. Um, in 9.11, he says it twice, never again, never again. And then here in 12, he says, the sign of the covenant, which this covenantal language is repeated, will be this bow in the clouds. Uh, Sidney Grenana says, strangely but appropriately, the sign of the covenant is the bow. In the, in the mind of Moses as an Israelite and those even then in this particular time, um, normally this bow is understood as a weapon of war. But now God's bow of war is, hangs in the heavens as a sign instead of war, now of peace, linking heaven and earth. That's pretty amazing here that he chooses what would normally be thought as a sign of war, as his sign of peace to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, I've set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and the everlasting, I'm sorry, and the living creature of all flesh um, on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant, again, covenant all over, that I have established between me and the flesh that's on all the earth. 
So what I want you to see here in this third thing, as the covenant language is, is being used over and over with Noah, that's the way that God is going to interact now with the people at the particular time, specifically Noah. Um, he's interacting with Noah in, in the form of covenant. And this is the same as for us. This is the exact same for us. The third thing is this. As being a new creation, God will always relate to us now in terms of a covenant. Now, when we hear that, we're like, yeah, I already know that. What's next? We can't simply blow by that. That's huge. We're relating to God in the new covenant because of Jesus, which means from now on, those who are in Christ always, God chooses to instead of relate to us and what we deserve, judgment, because we're sinners and we willfully say, I'm going to sin against you. Maybe it's not outright like that in your mind and your heart, but you still do it. Every single one of us chooses to sin. And when we do that, the justice of God demands judgment upon us. But that's not what he does. Because we're new creations, if you're in Christ, you're new creations. Instead of giving us justice, he gives us mercy. And the, the form of this mercy that he gives to us is this new covenant in Jesus. Therefore, the way that God relates us now is only in terms of covenant means that whenever he sees us, whenever he interacts with us, it's because we have a mediator, Jesus, standing between us, declaring us because of his death on the cross. God is declaring us as righteous. As he sees Christ, we receive his righteousness. And all the judgment that we should have received is put on Jesus. So it's, it's an unbelievably beautiful thing to understand that our relation with God has to, has to always be in terms of covenant or else we receive his righteous judgment and we receive damnation forever. But instead, the good news is there is no condemnation for anyone that is in Christ Jesus. And God chooses to, out of mercy, interact with us in terms of covenant because of Jesus. We are, like this creation was cleansed and made new. We are cleansed because of Jesus on the cross and made new. I think you need to hear this as you walk through your life every day. As you know, just like I know, There's times where I'm continuing in this walk with Christ where I sin and I need to be able to remember God relates to me in terms of the new covenant. Not the old man, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That old man is past. That's not true of me. Thank you, God, for relating to me in terms of the new covenant or else I'm a dead man. It's such good news. It's amazing news, something that you can't just fly past. Now, um, this last section is, is strange. I, I can't describe it any other way. It's just strange. Um, let me read the last three words to us all, and I think that brings context, kind of. It is strange. You read it, and you're just like, why did this happen? The last three words of verse 29 is this. Describing Noah, it says, and he died. That, those three words help us understand this last section. Thus far... Because you're all good readers, you're all excellent readers, and you're thinking, okay, so far as I've read the book of Genesis, I've only seen two people be described as somebody that literally walked with God, Enoch and Noah, Enoch and Noah. And we know for Enoch, he lived 300 and some odd years or something like that, or 500, I can't remember. And all of a sudden the Lord said, Enoch, you walk with me so closely, I don't want you down there anymore. I want you up here now. You don't even have to die. It just says Enoch was no more. And so as we're reading it, okay, I'm reading it. And Noah walked with God. And so I'm kind of on the edge of my seat saying, when's Noah going to be taken up? When's Noah not going to die? Is it, is it now? Is it now? He's off the ark. Okay, everything's good. And all of a sudden, we see here in 29, he died. He didn't get taken up. What happened? This particular episode here, where Noah gets drunk, passes out in his tent naked, I think, shed some light on the reader as you're reading through and you're looking for him to be taken up and you read this and you're like, ah, oh, that, that's why I died. That's why, that's why he wasn't taken up. Um, now, we need to realize that this particular story, and that's kind of the last we hear of Noah, isn't saying all of a sudden Noah fell out of God's graces and he's done. But it does make some sense to us as to why he wasn't taken up like Enoch and never had to die. Now, It's a particularly weird story, I know. Um, You can see it uh, right there. Verse 21 is kind of the the weird point. He drank wine, he became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. So as we're reading that, we're just like, what happened to Noah? 
Why did he, you know, become like somebody from South Georgia and get hammered and just pass out in his house like naked? That doesn't even make sense. What's going on here? Um, so let's kind of understand it all in context and hopefully we can, we can get some understanding. It says the sons of Noah um, in 18, over and over it said this, uh, the sons of Noah who went forth in the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Parenthetical statement is going to be important. It's, it's important in the curses as we get later, but he's going to say that a few times before we get there. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Verse 20 as, it walks, as, as Noah walks out, all of a sudden it says he became a man of the soil. Presumably was not a man of the soil before. Didn't grow food, didn't eat. But before, likely because we know that Cain's family had built a city and God said this is sinful. And generally in an urban area, there's a city. If there's people that make food, you don't have to make food. You can make whatever you want, whatever you're good at. And as you make that, you can trade for food and therefore you can still eat. And that city urban area, that works. However, in this particular area, God had just flooded everything and there was nobody to trade with. And so it's kind of like back to square one for Noah. Can't keep making boats. Maybe he was making boats before. Who knows what he was making? Can't make that anymore because I got no one to trade with. So back to the ground. I got to start making food. We got to eat. And as he's doing that, he also became a man of the soil. And he decides, as he's a man of the soil, to plant a vineyard. I looked up the people that do that. Those people are called vintners. Uh, those are gardeners that are they're vintners. He's a, he's a vintner now. Um, now, we'll notice here, it says, Noah began to plant, uh, began, man of the soil, he planted a vineyard. And then we have 21, he drank wine and became drunk. We need to realize that the space of time between 20 and 21 is vast. You can't just like plant a vineyard on Tuesday and you're hammered on Wednesday. That's not how it works. Like it takes a long time to, to even get the vineyard to grow. And as it's growing, then you've got to do all the other stuff, you know, squash it, whatever, stomp them, make the wine. Uh, so it takes a long time. So this is a, a, a long planned out, uh, not necessarily, I'm not going to say a long planned out sin of Noah, because I don't think it's a sin to plant a vineyard and I don't think it's a sin to drink wine. Um, but as he's going through life and doing that, we can see this kind of progressive time where something happens. Something happens. Um, so, all right. Verse 21 says, He drank of the wine, he became drunk, and laid uncovered in his tent. Now, in Noah's defense, um, he was in his own home. So, the sin of Noah, in this particular verse as we're reading it, is drunkenness. It's not a sin to drink it's not a sin to be in your home, presumably in your bed, naked. That, that doesn't seem to be that that would be a sin. Instead, Noah's sin here is that he became drunk. And through that long spirit, uh, place of time between 20 and 21 as he's planting this vineyard, etc. And then enters his son, presumably the worst day of his life, uh, Ham, on, on multiple levels. Uh, not just the curse, but, you know, what he has to take in. Uh, but so you see here uh, in 22... And Ham saw the nakedness of his father. I always think this is quite interesting. You know, generally in kids' areas for color sheets, you've got the ark and you've got the big giraffe head and that's the thing that we hand out to kids. Thank the Lord we never have this story as a color sheet for the children. Um, but we've got, we've got this weird episode here where, that's uh, so strange. Um, in 22, it says, Ham, again, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and then went out and told his brother. So, um, this word saw in the Hebrew, this isn't just kind of like, hey, dad, I got to quit. Oh, wait a second. Let's get out of here. It's not one of those. This saw instead insinuates um, as he walked in and saw the nakedness of his father. This is intently staring. This is looking at him in a long kind of like gazing at his father's nakedness in a, in a way that's just wrong. So as we're moving into Ham's sin, um, we can kind of lay our finger on what it might be. The, uh, some of the commentaries said this was homosexual activity and even familial homosexual activity. Maybe that's the case, but it does say they went on and had all these kids. So I don't know that that's it. Um, so part of it is this bringing shame, I think, to his dad is more the, is more the deal. Brought shame to his dad as he intently saw and, and even more so, we don't know the conversation with his brothers. We don't know if it was like, dude, you got to see this. Dad's so hammered. It, comes, it could be like shameful or it could just be like, you know, uh, brothers, uh, uh, go look in there. We have no idea what the, conversation, what the conversation ensued. So it's all conjecture as we try to point it out. But what we do know from the, from the verses that follow is 
that Ham brought shame on the family by shaming his dad in some way, whether it's the staring or the telling of the brothers or whatever, or maybe he just was a blabbermouth. We don't really know. The, the text doesn't point to blabbermouth. Um, but what we know is in this, there is a sin of, of, of Noah of getting drunk and a sin of, a sin of Ham by either staring or bringing in the brothers in some kind of fashion. We're not exactly sure, uh, but he is staring at him in some kind of way. Now, uh, I did this in first service. I want to do it again. I think I've got the time. Um, yeah, I do. As, this is just a small little excursus on alcohol. Uh, it has nothing necessarily to do with this, but as we go through the scriptures, it's helpful. As we go through the scriptures and things come up about alcohol and stuff like that. I, I don't think I've ever talked about it or taught on it at Remedy. I'm just going to do a small little section on it here uh, about alcohol because I think it's helpful as we go back into to understand uh, the sin here. I've heard a lot of times people saying that alcohol in the Bible, well, first of all, let's say this. Um, drinking wine is not a sin. It's not a sin. Jesus drank wine. Jesus was perfect. So it can't be that drinking wine is a sin. It just can't be, right? Um, we've got other texts that point to drunkenness as a sin, but not drinking wine itself. I've also heard that people say, well, that's because in the, in the Bible, um, whenever people talked about wine, it just wasn't alcoholic. It, it was really, really low levels of alcohol. The only problem with that is every time I read stories about people drinking wine in the Bible, they're always getting drunk after they drink that wine. So it sounds like it probably did have alcohol. It never, they just drank a whole barrel and then he drove himself home. It doesn't say that in the Bible ever, right? It always says, what's going on here in Acts 2? They're all talking crazy. It must be that they drank a whole lot of wine. Or in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk on wine. So it seems like wine has the ability to intoxicate. Maybe there's two, but that just doesn't make sense to me that there's two special ones. Or in, when, in, in John 2, where he, Jesus created water, or wine from water, all of a sudden he brought up the best. And the best insinuates that it was probably high in alcohol. Um, and Jesus... And, just to reiterate one last point, it can't be that drinking wine is a sin. I mean, the, the Lord's Supper on the last day of his life was instituted with wine. I mean, it's the last day of his life. Why would he use wine at that particular time if it was a sin? So what we do know is this, Ephesians five eighteen: do not get drunk on wine for that leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So the drinking of wine to the point of drunkenness is the sin not drinking it itself. Now, certainly you can make some social uh, comparisons and there's wisdom on uh, drinking with an alcoholic or drinking it in public. And I'm not getting into those things. I'm just saying in this particular point, the drunkenness is the sin of Noah, not the uh, drinking of wine or even planting a vineyard. If you want to be a vintner, go at it. Be the best Christian, gospel, Jesus-loving, to the glory of God vintner that you can be. Um, I don't think that's a sin. But here we see in verse 22, Ham, uh, the father of Canaan, again, wanting us to make sure that we all realize as we're reading the Bible, we see how cursed the Canaanites are, that it all is because of this, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment. This is really important. Um, Shem and Japheth, the two brothers, the Bible is going to tell us in this verse 24, the length um, that they go to to cover their father's nakedness and shame. Literally, they, when they walk into the tent, like if this is the tent door, they turn around and they kind of spread uh, like themselves over. You get it, and they hold the things with their shoulder, and they literally walk backwards to cover up their dad with the garment, and then they walk back out. It's, it's very descriptive language and intentional on how they cover up their dad and don't want to see it. Look at this. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment. Don't miss that. That's not something you just breeze by as God the Father at the end of Genesis 3, as Jack pointed out, God covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve with animals' garments. So the sons of Noah are going to cover him with a garment. Um, took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, walked backwards and covered the nakedness. As Adam and Eve, after they sinned, nakedness was covered. Here, Noah's nakedness is covered of their father. Their faces were turned backward for they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke, oh, this is interesting language, awoke from his wine, didn't awake from his sleep, but literally awoke from his wine. I just find that interesting. And he knew what his youngest son had done to him. How? I don't know. Either maybe he wasn't all the way out or the brothers came and told him, we don't need to know. 
Moses doesn't seem to think it's important. He knew what happened, and then the curses began. But as we're looking at this, I want us to make sure we understand just a few things. He took the fruit of the orchard and became naked, just like Adam, who took the fruit of the garden, and because he sinned, became aware of his nakedness. Adam fell and brought on a curse. So when Noah and his family, a curse is going to come upon Ham. As Adam once enjoyed the good gifts of creation and then the fall happened, Noah enjoyed the good gifts of this new creation and deliverance from sin, and then he eventually had his own kind of fall, if you will. Um, Adam had three sons mentioned, and their lives are going to play out now in the consequences um, of the fall. And these three sons uh, of Noah are going to also live in the consequences of their father's quote-unquote fall. But at the end, the grace still extends to Adam there at the end in Genesis 3. And we're even going to see blessings said here at the end to some of Noah's father, uh, uh, sons. And so even as the narrative ends for Noah, it still ends with blessing. As, as blessing is extended to Adam at the very end, blessing is extended to Noah's generations at the end. So there's lots of parallels, as I've said, between the creation and the new creation, between Adam and Noah. But here's one of the things I think is the most amazing and I think this is Genesis 3.15, Proto-Evangelium stuff here. This is about Jesus stuff. In Genesis 3, when Adam fell, God covered the nakedness of, of Adam and Eve. But in this particular time, Shem and Japheth, who like God, were the sons that came in and covered the nakedness. Meaning, Jesus covers our sin. The son covered the nakedness or the sin of their father with a garment. Similarly now, the capital S son covers our sin by taking it on the cross. And I don't think this is accidental. I think that the Bible is intentionally over and over warning us to just be astutely aware of this great gospel message that the son covers sin. The son covers sin. And you can notice what happens. Cursed be Cain, Canaan, that's Ham's son, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Let me, let me fix one thing. Perhaps you've never heard this, but if you ever hear it, you need to know that this is absolutely false. Um, I've never heard anybody say this before at Remedy. I'm just going to clear it up anyway. I've heard this in seminary. Um, in some circles, at least 50 years ago, some people believed that the curse of Ham was the pigmentation of their skin. That the curse of Ham now is you know and you can see those that are in the line of Ham because they are darker skinned. That is ridiculous and idiotic. As vehemently strong language as I can use and it still be counted a sermon. That is wrong, wrong, wrong and dumb. It's not the case. That is not what's going on. So, um, so you hear some racist say that. Say something really strong but not sinful to him. That is wrong. Um, so, cursed be Canaan, the servant of his brothers, she shall be. But also, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem, by the way, will be the line that Abram comes to, which Jesus comes from. So, there's blessings poured on this because we're all intently looking away. Okay, the three brothers are on the left. Noah's going to die. Where's the offspring? Where's the offspring? Boom, this blessing's poured out to Shem. Oh, I'm looking for Shem now. Jack's going to go into these lines next week and, and go into chapter 11. So we'll continually see that there's this promised offspring that's promised in 315 that's being fulfilled through the line of Shem. May God, uh, in verse 7, enlarge Japheth. Japheth means enlarge, so he's literally saying, may God enlarge, enlarge, um, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. And then he died, the last of those long livers. The last of those long livers. Um, people that lived a long time, not like in your body. Um, but the point is this. The fourth thing I want us to see as we're looking at this restoration of new creation is this. This was a future sin of Noah as God was restoring him and, and bringing him into the ark to save him. As he declared him in chapter 6, righteous, blameless, and walks with God. This sin later on did not take God by surprise. So here's the thing about being a new creation. Fourth one, being a new creation means God covers our future sins. There's a really good book by John Piper. Maybe you want to check it out called Future Grace. It's all about this. God doesn't just save you and forgive you and cleanse you from your sins past up to this point if you're a Christian. But every sin you've ever committed and will commit as you're working out this 
hard idea of being renewed and restored, sanctification, walking in this path of becoming more Christ-like as a Christian until you die. You're not achieving salvation. You're giving evidence of your salvation, but as you're giving evidence, as you're choosing to be a first impulse worshiper in all situations and not giving into temptation, you're still going to sin. You don't want to. I don't want to, but we're still going to. And the good news is that our future sins are covered by His grace. I think we need to hear that. I mean, I don't know that anybody who doesn't, as they're walking down the path of trying to pursue, really kill sin in their life and they seem to not have any, any, any victory ever. God, why is this still happening? Listen, all of your sins are cleansed, even future sins. That's freedom. That is freedom as a Christ follower. He's not holding you captive to the sin you're going to do in 20 years saying, oh, that one thing you're going to do in 20 years is bad, dude. That's freedom to live now for him. Every sin is cleansed. I had a universal sin problem and I have received a universal cleansing, past, present, and future. That's the kind of worshiper that I, that, that's the kind of person that creates us as a first impulse worshiper to God. So as we go into this, I want to read the same conclusion I had from last week about Jesus, where this guy, Sidney Grudanus, says that Jesus is the truer and greater Noah. Noah prefigured Jesus in a lot of ways. Noah was saved by, by the flood, etc. It says Noah's a type of Jesus. Noah's the seed of the woman, just like Jesus was also. A new Adam representing a human race. He was a righteous man who was blameless, just like Jesus. But Christ is also greater than Noah. Through Christ, God makes a completely new start with his people. He gives them clean hearts. Noah couldn't do that. He gives them a hope of a new creation. Noah kind of did that, but it was because of Jesus. The new heavens and the new earth will be his home, just like they were Noah's. The flood was judgment, and Noah helped the family escape judgment. But Jesus not only helps us escape judgment, but literally takes the judgment on himself. Noah didn't do that. Jesus is the truer and greater Noah. Everything is because of Christ. And he is totally worthy of our worship. So let's do that now. I'm going to pray. And if you're in Christ, just stand and give him the glory for all these things. Resolve in your mind that you want to be a first impulse worshiper and give him all the glory for all that he's done. If you don't know Christ, just come talk to me. I'll be back here in the back. I'd love to have a conversation with you about Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this time that you've given us to be here and look at your word. It's hard to say in my own sinful, small mind that can't understand everything, but say thank you for the story of the flood. In a lot of respects, I don't like seeing people die, but Lord, you're sovereign and you're good and you, you know what you're doing. But you certainly have given us a great picture of what it means to be a new creation, cleansed. Would you, God, um, work the deep truths of the gospel and of being a new creation down deep in our hearts? Never let us get over that you interact with us and relate to us now in terms of covenant. And all of our future sins are covered. I pray this in Jesus' name.